Welcome to the Indie Opera Podcast. Today, a wide-ranging conversation about opera and Vancouver and American Jobs and Didi Ramon and Nicole Smith, Strippers, Dancing with the Stars, RuPaul's Dry Grace, but mostly about opera. A conversation that had to happen and could only happen on the Indie Opera Podcast. Welcome to the Indie Opera Podcast. This is Peter. This is Noah. This is Brooke. And this is Walker. All right. We did it. Woohoo. We'll try something different uh, today. We're just going to, we have no structure. We're going to try and see where our conversation will go. This was inspired by Noah. Are you ready, Noah? Yeah, I'm ready. I so, think it's going to be great. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, because I think we, this is what we are really, really good at, you know? We're not good, we're not good at pronouncing things or not making mistakes. <laughs> we're really good at just talking. But you can't just talk. It has to be conceit. All right, I'm going to take you up on something. Okay. Just because someone mentioned this to me, uh, my friend Steve said, you know, you should have said something. So do you really think that you and I think so opposite on so many things? Do you really feel uh, that way? Well, no. No, not. I mean, we, we definitely have a lot of things in common, I think. But but I think that, that yeah, I do think there is there are really important things that we diverge on. Okay. I don't know. And I sometimes think that you think... A lot of times, you know what? Like, here's one example. A lot of times when, like, just to be super abstract, a lot of times when I hate something because the technique is off, you'll... uh, we'll, And we see it together. You'll be like, yes, but the expression. Like, it's always the technique. And then if I think, like, wow, that was really awesome, you'll always be like, that was really badly conducted. It's we're always kind of tuning in on different things. (laughs) I think that's what it is. (laughs) Wouldn't it be horrible if we had a podcast where it was like, I, I loved that, Peter. Did you love that? And you were like, I also love that. That <laughs> would be boring. <laughs> be but, you know, sometimes I'm also trying to lead the conversation. In- yeah, and you're good at that. And I, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes I express opinions that aren't even necessarily totally mine. They're just to get people, get, to get the subject in the room. I don't always agree with everything I say. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> we can take I it with a grain of salt from now on. <laughs> no, I like that. I, I, I think that that's... I, I can't be held to what I thought maybe like two years ago, a year ago. I don't know. <laughs> right? Because you know, things change. Yeah. Well, or even two months ago sometimes. Right. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. So, so you saw... We, we went and saw a dress rehearsal uh, yeah. of Elio Gablo. Did either of you uh, see it as well? I couldn't. I wanted to, but I didn't get to. I'm going to see it this uh, tomorrow night, actually. Um, oh, awesome. I, yeah. I, was, I, I thought the dress rehearsal was incredible. Yeah, I don't, mm. don't want to ruin it for anyone by talking. I mean, there that. are like things to be, again, there are things like technical things you could be 
you know, it's a tough venue. It's 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 like hard to find a place to sit. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, where, if you sit at all, right? Because don't right, a lot of people you, have to stand up? Right. I mean, most of it. We 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 stood through the whole like part, portion that we were there. Yeah. Um, but uh, and, and you know the orchestra's kind of buried in there and kind of in the back, which is which is tough, but. It's exciting. It's an exciting show, and like, there's a lot of. I don't know. It's cool. I mean, it's 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 definitely something that I would would want to sit through the whole evening of, even though I only got to see a portion of it. Well, what what I'm curious what you thought of the choreography because I've seen uh, choreography by that. Um, is it Alexander McCormick? I thought... McCormick. Oh, okay. Uh, and and I'm, I'm curious what you what you thought of it. Well, you know, for me, I, I always I don't really know very much about choreography i just know whether or not something looks like it's working on stage i think and i i felt like there was they had enough space to do what they needed to do which is Mm -hmm. which and that's why i mean at least as far as that went i that worked for me and and the blocking at least looked like everybody kind of had room to move and 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 to do what they Mm. needed to do and there was never in a cramped in a small space there was never a sense that anybody was any really really limited by anything, you know, in, mm. in contrast to Maria de Buenos Aires, which, which I really thought was interesting in other ways, but it was in terms of blocking and staging was like a mess. I thought, what, what uh, Maria Buenos Aires, what is that? That was Piazzolla's opera. Brooke was there, right? You were there. We saw each yeah, other. Yeah, we did. We saw each other there. Where was it? It was uh, at Le Poisson Rouge. Ah. Yo soy Maria. Yeah, it was very crowded. I mean, I was there actually as like a volunteer for Opera Hispanica because I know Daniel. And um, and it was very crowded. That I think is... And it was crowded on stage too, which was... Mm. I think difficult. I, I think my impression is that they sort of did the best they could with the space that they had. But there yeah. was about, there was like maybe three feet at the front of the stage for the actors to play in. <laughs> but wow. you know what the bummer was, was it was actually a really good choice for that a first opera for like a first time company doing a first production. Um, because you could have done a lot less. You could have let those dancers dance in a more designated space and not have to trip over the singers. And it, it just, it looked, it looked like somebody got their fingers too much in the batter. You know, like it looked like too messed with. And, mm. uh, and the work is really interesting, although super, super weird. Uh, and the subtitles were really poetic, which is fun. And I, I had a good time, but it was, you could tell the audience was not, reading it but that's another issue what did you think brooke of the of the kind of audience that was going like what did you think about the audience that was there the night that we were there i was working the door um it was a very very largely well-to-do population of people and then a whole bunch of artist types but it was very it the venue made it uncomfortable at least that's what that was my experience of it and it, it made it so it was a sort of uncomfortable venue for that kind of crowd i think see i think you're being very generous <laughs> <laughs> in what way so we were sitting at a table with a bunch of uh older people who were kind of just they were they looked like they had just kind of been like what's going on here let's let's just check this out you know they didn't look like they were opera goers or they didn't look like they were in t- tuning into what was going on at all and they would look like they were there to eat, 
And they did. And then when the music, when the opera started, they just thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. And I think, I think these people have never read a poem. I think they've probably never seen a movie that didn't like, you know, 100% make rational sense. That was my impression. They were really put off by like, it. they were like, this is such a weird opera. And it just was really, <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. It was like it ruined it. Ru- I mean, it, it didn't ruin my, I still enjoyed a lot of the opera. I mean, Piazzolla can write some music. Nope. I mean, that's not, I'm not, you know, saying anything new there, but I still enjoyed it. But they, they're just so annoying sitting there laughing at like oh. <laughs> smirking. Like, this is so funny. This is, this is hilarious. This, this is what we're watching here. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's so bad. <laughs> I wanted to strangle them. I wanted to throw their dessert in their face. Oh, no. I'm surprised that they were there because because usually at those events at Poisson Rouge it seems like it's it's always this kind of in crowd who are you know very they're yeah they're they're either like really cool kind of artsy you know young hipster classical music crowd or else they're kind of old you know the older set who have seen you know millions of operas before and know know exactly what they're expecting so I'm, I'm surprised. And I don't think it's an age thing at all. I think it's an attitude thing. I don't think Uh it's an. I think it's a. I think it's the kind of the kind of thing that they're expecting when they go out. The problem with Poisson Rouge is it's super expensive. The food is Mm -hmm. is just expensive, and the drinks are expensive. So that kind of invites people to try it when they're out to spend a lot of money. And I, I don't know. I just think it. It's a weird venue. I'm not sure I like it. So were the singers amplified? Like did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think that's Mm. actually an issue about why people behave differently. Mm. I think when you have an act that's amplified, it's almost like watching a TV. It's so loud that people don't Mm. expect themselves to be heard and they feel free to be able to say and do and behave however they want once you know you know what i'm saying it's like going to a rock concert people yeah like, that yell does make kind of sense actually Ooh. i've never thought about that but that does make sense i think it, it depends huh. on the amplification though I, I will say that whoever did the amplification uh did a good job because i couldn't really tell except i didn't i could note that the maria role is basically unsingable it's 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 really hilarious it's like so many really good works it's like an unsingable role it's all below like it doesn't go into any sort of like uh like the mix of a soprano's voice so it's like you're just in your chest the whole time like sawing away and uh she did a great job because i think she was really careful and very strategic about how she did it but i i I think she would have had to be amped if you learned recently that the score it's written up an octave but i guess is traditionally sung down the octave Wow. So I don't, I don't actually know how it's supposed to be done because this is the only performance of that opera that I've seen. But yeah. I have a friend who, who, who did the role of the narrator um, with another company, and he said, oh, yeah, it's not written that way. It's written up an octave, which was new to me. So it, it's totally singable if you sing it in your middle voice. <laughs> um, well, she, I mean, she did it. That's the thing, too. I mean, I, you know, there are some recordings of Piazzolla songs and things sung by women that basically sound like Japanese no narrators. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. where they have this crazy, shaky, amazing chest voice and that, you know, like Ima Sumac or something. And that's, yeah. that's great. That's that those kinds of singers, they, they could sing the shit out of this music. No problem. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm talking about like, you could tell this woman who's was, is like, a, was, a, was an exceptionally trained, you know, kind of finely nuanced singer who was like making these really good choices in her bottom register. And I just thought, Whoa, so much effort 
art for something that's just so badly written. You know, uh, uh, it's like when people sing Fidelio really well. It's like, wow, good job, but man, no one should have to do that. <laughs> no one, no one should. Uh, uh, by the way, it is perfectly fine to swear. <clears throat> I've taken off our PG rating, and we're just All right. we're nice. we're adults. I know. We're going for it. Nice. It's unfiltered. So I'm going to go back to Ilya Gabalo. Yes. Okay. Just because I have one thing to say because I learned something. I learned something today. <laughs> um, I mean, it was a dress rehearsal, so I'm really not going to talk about performances or anything like that. I don't think it's fair. Um, mm. I do think that that, that hall swallowed some pretty spectacular sounds because I knew some of those singers and I know how bright and wonderful and clear are their voices and it was not easy to hear them. But this opera has or at least the staging of the opera, has nudity. I mean, real, all-out, bouncy, uppy, downy nudity, all right? Wow. <laughs> like um, ankles, <laughs> like calves, like everything, wow. like knees. Breasts. Oh, my God, <laughs> knees. No, breasts, <laughs> everything. Yes, I was counting. That was the 15th and, I think, 16th breast I've ever seen in my life I saw at that dress rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm... <laughs> But also all the bodies, like they had, they had a lot of the characters were, were, you know, just even the men were topless and they really are, are bodies that should have felt sexy. All right. They really uh -huh. should have, but, and, and it should have felt shocking in some way, but it actually didn't feel shocking to me. And I think one of the reasons for that is the venue. It's so natural for these you know naked people to be doing the things in that particular venue that it lost some of its shock value for me if mm. this was performed let's say at john jay college and they were dressed that way and they were naked on stage it would have felt scandalous it would have mm -hmm. been like wow it's so weird in this like you know opera house and these naked people behaving this way. But mm. but because of its location, it turned the sort of lasciviousness and the shocking part. It totally dampened it out for me. Hmm. Do you know? Do you think that Wait, well, why, yeah. why is the nudity supposed to be shocking? Why is nudity well, I'm not coded? saying it is. Now, that's the oh. interesting thing. Lo it made me think about location. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So you're saying it was a good location for nudity. It could. Uh, it really depends on what their message was. You know what I'm I mean, saying? As the a nudity is just normal there. It's, yes. It norm normalizes it. Yeah, of. it really normalizes it. And as a director, if... if but it wasn't normalized. It was a part of the way that that story was being told. It wouldn't have been nudity just for nudity's sake. It was like part of Ilio Gabolo, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. But if, the, if I, as a director, wanted the message to be, Ilio, here's this Ilio... Uh, sorry, I'm saying Ilio... Elio Gabo character and he was perverted and he lived this way and that caused his downfall by moving into a location where the nudity and the perversion seems totally natural it somehow dampens that message if that's the message I'm trying to give or I think that's a weird that's a beeline that's a that's a beeline kind of message though I think that would be kind of like that I don't know it's after school especially that thing that you said <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I don't know if that's what's going on. Anytime we're doing operas, like usually about like primarily about spectacle, it's about drawing people to come see something. And a lot of times, whatever you're drawing them to see is super distasteful and bizarre, shocking or freak people out. You know, right. and I think like so. But that's my point. If let's say it was put in another location. Mm. The it would have been more spectacular than nudity. It would have been more graphic. 
In, in so the this, nudity was too integrated into something It was so natural. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. And it made me just think about how we make these choices. Like, yes, maybe doing a performance in a location where everything is completely natural, maybe that's not necessarily the message you want to be conveying. You don't want to... <laughs> don't you think that the audience was... Because it's probably, you know, it's a Gotham opera crowd. So it's probably people who like Gotham opera. Do you think that they were kind of titillated, a little excited going into that place, a little deviant, a little weird... So do, do, do I mean? Th th so they were they were expecting something dirty, right? But, but, but I mean, do do you think that added something to the show? That that's an excellent question. Because that's that's probably <laughs> why they did question. it there. Because they 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 want to titillate the audience, right? But I to me it would have been actually a little. It would have been more titillating if it was in a more discordant location. Right. Right. Like somehow mm -hmm. it it's more illicit if it, if you perform this in Carnegie Hall. Yeah. With that nudity, it would have been like, <gasps> it would have just been like, oh my God, what are they doing on this stage? So, could, you know, maybe what I mean? they were actually not going for the spectacle then. Maybe exactly. they were really just going for telling the story. Which I think is yeah. really interesting. I just made me, it made me really mm -hmm. question the idea of like how this exact same story told in a different location can have mm -hmm. a very different message and a different impact. It was very, it just sort of opened my eyes in a, in a really. Mm -hmm. a, it, to more aspects, more thinking. I have to think a little more clearly when you do these sort of site-specific things. So that's what I learned. Hmm. That's a that's, good thing to learn. That's a good point. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So why do you think they did it? Do you think they did it more because the story would make sense in that environment more? Or do you think they did it more because of the publicity of doing it in a weird deviant location would, would help the, didn't the, they talk about the that when they were on the, when we talked to them, they, they said that they picked was, the venue because they felt like if, uh, Elio Gabolo was alive today, this was the kind of venue that he, he would, would be right. That he would be like, at and be yeah. invested in. Yeah. yeah. It seems like it's sort of the natural, it's, it's mm -hmm. the, putting it in its natural context, which is, it's interesting. It was, yeah. that to me was sort of the dialogue going on in my head when I was watching it. That it's is so interesting. That's a really good point. Now you got me thinking, Peter, about this whole thing, because it's this game of provoking to, and you know, it's, it's a very, it's a kind of delicate, problematic thing to try to provoke people. Yes. Because as soon as you, as soon as you like affect a production, you are normalizing or you are kind of mitigating or mediating that instinct to really piss people off. Well, and it also depends on how immersive the event is. The more you understand, let's say, Medea. Mm -hmm. Good point. Good yeah. choice, I mean. Do you know what I mean? The more you sort of immerse yeah. in her mind, the more she gets normalized. And maybe the act of murdering the children becomes less gruesome in some way. I mean, it's just an, it's an interesting thought. If you're, right. so, if you're really getting totally into the culture, uh, let's say the Roman culture, when, the, when all this was going on... Uh, his actions would be nor more normalized so that you can sort of see how a, an emperor like that could have happened, even though, you know, it was outside event. He didn't, yeah. he didn't reign for very long, did he? Yeah. No, but wouldn't like he, two he, years. Yeah. Right. He would have been somebody like, um, I don't know if there's like an analogous person, but there are like crazy leaders, short lived crazy leaders, you know, who do crazy things. Oh yeah. I mean, of course. And I'm trying to think yeah, short-lived, short though. Yeah. Just because you normalize it within the context of the story doesn't mean that it would, would be normal for the audience. Because some, no, sometimes, you know, I mean, I mean if, you, if, if you have a murderer, you know, in a story and it's just completely casual for him to just mur murder people. 
that's that's shocking still you know? but then the then the action becomes as much about the environment as it is about the character and the, it becomes a question of the character being is a person developed from the environment they live in do, do you mm-hmm. know what i'm saying yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's right, a major right, right. philosophical and, yeah. and psychological <laughs> issue that you're kind of right, tapping what, into. What Walker said about, I think you're right when, when you said that it, it's not, it doesn't necessarily like neutralize it. Yes, of course, like mediating something is to make something that's shocking performative in a way that's, you know, like that. This is my argument always about like video games and things like if you enjoy video games, if you enjoy violent video games or if you enjoy violence in media, you know, I think in a way it's because, I mean, of course, for people who are unwell, it's about something else. But if, if you're a well person, if you don't want to hurt people, it's because your instincts to not hurt people are in check that you're able to enjoy the shock of what's going on in the medium. Right. You know, and there is also a kind of balance point. There's a, there's a point at which you go, you know, this is kind of like too gruesome or this expression of gruesomeness doesn't match up with like the, whatever I'm doing here or, or like, you know, it can kind of go either way. It's, it's not, it's something that can be botched. It, it's something that it can be messed up because it's, it's not a perfect formula. Right. Mm-hmm. And it comes back to that idea about provoking, you know, like the, when you provoke, it's not just about shocking someone. It's about kind of testing the waters, which implies that there's a weird kind of feedback with your audience, which is what Peter, which is what you're talking about. There's a there's a reflexive loop with the kind of space that you pick with the context that that you put something in. Yes. It's not just about you putting something on. It's about how you putting something on happens in a, in a, in a place. Yeah. Yeah, but it's true. It is a problem sometimes with with shows that are very self self uh, self aware that they're sexy, that they're deviant. You know, I think it's 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 more shocking when something surprises you in in, in the middle of something where you see something and, and it's just you know fairly normal, and then suddenly you see something that's incredibly shocking, like like right. uh, that like that that uh, Michael Haneke movie, the the piano teacher. You oh know, God. every I mean, it's 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 a weird movie, but suddenly at the end, she just like stabs herself. Oh, it's, <laughs> like you cannot yeah. see. There's no way you, you could see that coming, and that that's a lot more shocking than than a movie where people are just like stabbing each other all the time. You know, right. so, so I, I would always su- prefer I would prefer a surprise rather than something that's just shocking all the way through. You know, he's a great he's a great person to bring up because Hanukkah like. <laughs> does such incredibly gruesome things in his films, but he wins every moment. He, he somehow yeah. really convinces you that each thing that he goes for, even though it's horrible and really difficult to endure, is like part of the story and it's part of how you're understanding what's going on, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Hanukkah. Well, that is a, <laughs> it is interesting, though, because it. I guess we're talking about what frame you're putting a picture or an action in front, or in front of. And if, you, and if you're actually, you know, sometimes you misdirect with the frame. Uh, and I'm trying to think of a good example, but there are times in operas when you have very violent scenes and the music swells. You already know what's going to happen because of the music that's going on. Um, or there's movies where suddenly, you know, a death occurs. Uh, mm-hmm. Or, or in, uh, I'm, trying, I'm thinking of the Chekhov play where someone shoots themselves, right? At the very every, yeah. every single one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is sort of a modern question, though, right? I mean, in terms of at least my awareness of, of opera production is that we're really sort of testing non-traditional venues, and I'm not sure that we have really figured out how that works yet. So, 
yeah. you know, it, for so long it was a given that it was going to be in the opera house or in the concert hall or maybe in a church. But it, it, you know, now we're using bars and we're using mo- old movie theaters and we're sort of kind of testing how these different contexts reflect back the show that we're producing um, and reflect back the story. And I, so I don't know that we've, I, I don't know that really anybody's really sort of trying to figure that out consciously yet. You know, we're just trying it on still. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. I think the other yeah. thing is is that the the works are going to change. The way people do write works and do works and produce works is going to change because of this kind of exploration of venue. I well, agree with they, that. They already have. I mean, certainly in scale, uh, I, I definitely think that the scale has changed to fit these venues. There's a lot more that's mm-hmm. being done that you know you don't you can't have a huge orchestra to fit. In I venues. would argue that the the venues are being chosen to fit the economic scale that we are in. Yeah, I think that yeah. a lot of places mm-hmm. are choosing ven- small venues where there's a possible you know high overhead because of drinks and food and whatever because mm-hmm. it's much more affordable to produce in that kind of environment than in a concert hall where people pay forty bucks for their tickets, but then you know they have to sell two thousand seats in order to make it profitable. Mm-hmm. You it's know, so it's great. We all need to starve more. We all need to be <laughs> money suffer more. It, 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 yeah, right. Put the opera back to this kind of like salon thing, you know, mm-hmm. like you know about people just in somebody's living room around a piano. I mean, I just I just went to this thing this weekend called Operation Brooklyn with uh, it was the American Opera Project. Yep. And it was at this place in Brooklyn. It was just like very, you know, not not a huge room. I mean, there was a piano in it, and um, and and the first part of it was was it was a song cycle of like seven singers. Then we went down for intermission. We were having drinks, and suddenly this this second opera just started in the like basically in the lobby while people were drinking wine and it and it really was like it was like a salon like or like a little musical theater salon performance and you know totally site specific and when the audience was like standing around and and they were like interacting with the audience i mean it's totally it's totally leaving a whole the whole you know accepted thing for opera it's it's it change changing an opera into, into something into other yeah something like musical theater or a salon so well, it makes me think about Bayreuth actually in a way yeah because I mean Bayreuth's this hysterical horrible hallucinogenic dream that shouldn't have kind of come true <laughs> but the, but, but the was... instinct behind Bayreuth is something amazing which is like opera new opera has to be done somewhere new has to transcend even the very kind of architectural confines that it's been you know it's like has to be there has to be a new place for the new opera so now, which is a weird radical idea let, let's listen to a little bit of the opera that i think you're talking about that invaded was it smashed the carry nation story yes that's it okay they sent me a uh, a sample of what they were doing Oh my God! Uh, and cool. uh, but let me just say what it is. It's actually they're they're going to be performing the Carination story, smash the Carination story at the Here Art Center here in New York, April fourth, fifth, and sixth at seven o'clock. And um, it's uh, tell us a little bit about it. What did what did you see? 
Well, basically, they just gave a little preview of it, um, and it seemed to me, I mean, it seemed to me that it was basically about a bunch of people at a party just getting wasted. Um, <laughs> so they're they're drinking their asses off. They're they're throwing up. They're like making out <laughs> with each other, saying inappro- inappropriate things, um, and it and it's very funny. And it sounds, I mean, to me, I didn't hear very much of it, but it sounded a lot like musical theater, really. I mean, right. it sounded it sounded like like a really comic crazy kind of like musical theater farce and you know about carrie nation yes i don't okay. i don't know i don't about her. all right yeah. yes carrie nation was this really severe looking woman uh, we'll put a picture She's of her terrifying the... oh looking. my gosh <laughs> and of course she believed that you know she was a radical anti let's call her she's a radical turn of the century teetotaler is that a good uh. word yeah, exactly. Well, what, what do you mean that she no drinking, no drugs? Yeah, and she would okay. go to she would go to destroy bars with hatchets. She would literally come with a hatchet in her hand oh, and man. start a swinging. Was she in Animal House with Belushi? <laughs> <laughs> nice. She was like six feet tall or something, wasn't she? Like oh freakishly huge woman. Wow. So wow, that's a- awesome. That's an amazing image. This is six foot tall woman with a hatchet coming at a bar. <laughs> that's not- <laughs> and it's and what makes it so, so so ironic is that opera on tap who are these people who do operas in bars they were uh-huh. the ones who commissioned this opera and it's their first opera they've ever commissioned anyway let's play a little bit of that So I'm g- I wanted to mention another thing that's going on, and this is something that I, I'm hoping that one of us knows something about. <laughs> um, <laughs> West Edge Opera, which is located in Berkeley, California, is doing um, Bonjour, Monsieur Gauguin, which is an opera about Gauguin by Fabrizio Carlone. Does anyone know who that is? Nope. No. no. Okay. So <laughs> <clears throat> I will play a little clip of that as well. Uh, 
it's coming up fri Friday, April 12th and Sunday, April 14th. Um, and Mary Chun is conducting a uh, rather large ensemble. And there's it's being done with video and dance. And it basically tells the story of Gauguin's life set to music using quotes Ooh. from his life and things like that. Cool. Nice. And, and the other thing I wanted to mention, which you might know about, do you know Dominic Argento's The Aspirin Papers? Do you know about Do Dominic Argento? Yeah, he went to Eastman. He went to my alma mater. Um, and he wrote this this thing. It's a really bizarre story, but basically it's this man trying to get some of the letters written by um, Jeffrey Aspern, whose character was supposed to be a famous now-dead American poet. And he goes to Venice and locates the, the poet's lover. And it's actually pretty good. I It's all on YouTube. I will post a huh. link to it on oh, YouTube. Cool. They have the full uh, you know, two-hour opera uh, wow. when it was originally performed in Dallas. Yeah, post that. Yeah, so I'm gonna yeah. post that. He's on great. Argento is very vo super vocal writer. You know, yeah, and like, I love his music. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's really lyrical, real lyrical, and his songs are great. And his with Miss Havisham's fire is cool. Yeah, and so is he related to the Argento Ensemble in New York? Uh, I don't they, think so. I think they named it after him, didn't they? Maybe. I don't know because the only Argento ensemble recording I have is of Tristan Marai and like spectral works, which is not – I don't think they they know each other. I don't think they uh, talk. But I don't uh, know. I don't think – well, I don't know. No, I mean, I don't think they. I don't think they fight. I just don't know if they. They, they seem like two different <laughs> moments in his in music, you know. Okay. Are they make he's still alive, right? Like he's not. No, he's not alive, but yeah. I think he's very old. He's eighty-five. Eighties, and he oh. lives in he lives in Minneapolis, as I recall. Yes. Oh, cool. Um, <clears throat> and it's been twenty-five years since the world premiere was done in Dallas, and so they're re <clears throat> they're repeating that uh, on the twenty-fifth anniversary. Awesome. I think it's awesome too. I want to go see it now that I, I watched it on YouTube. Yeah. You're going to go to Dallas? What's the opera called again? It's called oh. The Aspern Papers. A S P E R N. Not Aspirin. Okay. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Aspirin Papers. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone else, uh, what else have people seen? Hmm. I've seen a lot. Really? Really? Yeah. I saw um, both performances of the opera hispanica thing i also saw there they had a concert with iglis gutierrez and um diego silva uh on march 8th i saw that um i saw otello at the met Ooh. Oh, what'd you think uh it was okay so i love otello I love okay. the opera. Yeah, it's a fantastic opera. I'm it's glad you said pretty that. much pretty much flawless. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I love Jose Cura's interpretation of the role, 
Was he a little bit like? Was he a little bit like? Uh, like the like, guy at the gym that drops the weights. <laughs> That's a nice like analogy. That. He he just sort of like rushed through it. Um, uh-huh. The soprano. I don't know who the soprano was. Um, let's see. I don't know if I have my program in arm's reach, but um, the soprano was spectacular. This was on last Wednesday, so the twentieth or whatever that day was. Um, <clears throat> the soprano was great, and. Um, it was uh, Thomas Hampson as Iago, mm-hmm. which would not be my choice for Iago, but, nope. you know, whatever. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, the production was really pretty awesome. This, I mean, I'm always, every time I go to the Met, I'm just like, God, that's so amazing. Like, <laughs> what they do is so amazing. So, mm-hmm. um, but, like, I really felt like, like, Kura was ahead of the orchestra the whole time. Um, yeah. And, like, yeah, that you know, kind of criticized in the press, right? Well, he's a very muscular, not particularly um, musical singer, I will say. Like, I don't, I wouldn't, he he doesn't really sing he's phrases. He's super vain, he's too. He's like the most vain guy. He's like, you know, he's like, he's like, I wake up and I drink wine and I eat it and I, and I conduct an opera and then I write an opera and then I sit and I sing and like, I, it's, I'm perfect. You yeah. know, it's like, he's I that kind of guy. I think you can actually watch him on YouTube conducting himself singing. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, God. That's <laughs> but, awesome. Um, <laughs> but he, but like, so like, Esoltate is supposed to be a moment, right? Esoltate, right? And you come out. Oh my God. And And I was like, what is that? Like, that's not how that goes. You know, so it was just like that kind of, like, uh, just sort of it, which was too bad. But bummers. Yeah. I mean, the uh. spectacle of the Met is always sort of like, I'm always, I'm still sort of childlike in my, in my reverie of that. Wonder. And, yeah. 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 Um, and like I said, the Desdemona was really, really phenomenal. So that made up for weaknesses in other places. Because I had a church job this past Sunday, and the and all of the singers had seen Otello, and they were all just. They, I didn't know them very well, and they were all like, "Yeah, I just I don't like that opera. I just feel like it's it's not Verdi's best." And they were like really? one by one going, "Yeah, oh it's not God. really one of his best. I really like Rigoletto. Oh yeah, that's my. Favorite. I'm like." <clears throat> and just like kept it in, kept it in, you know, because you can't jump in and be like, no, it's like a masterpiece. And he was like 78 when he wrote it, and you're and you're wrong. And then you can't no, kick they're people. Wrong. <laughs> they're <laughs> they're wrong. I mean, Rigoletto is so wrong. Like, yeah, all of his operas. I, I like not all of his operas, but all of. I mean, there's a reason why we keep hearing his music and his operas. Like they're fantastic. The number operas. I mean, yeah, I mean, Otello is is a special, very special oh. opera. It's just it's just so amazingly crafted. It there's yeah. this, like there's so few. There's like no fat in it at all. It's just so perfectly created it's uh, yeah it was it was actually the first opera i ever worked on and, and it was cool. i was i was just i was dumbfounded by it really wow that's great and the whole like i mean he basically cuts the first act of shakespeare's text or boyito did and <laughs> that's such a gamble uh-huh. but it really you're right it's it works as a show it, it's a very it has a pace it has a it has a, a motion to forward you yeah know? yeah yep. and any, anyone seen anything else uh, I also oh I also saw Dead Men Walking at Boston Opera oh, Celebrity. Oh, cool! You know, um, so I'm biased because I started the company. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> That's a little biased. I, I had nothing to do with this production. I mean, I sit on the board, but I have absolutely nothing to do with the day to day operations of the company anymore. And in terms of where the company came from when when we founded it in 2006, it was 
a spectacular production. Um, Sister mm. Helen was there. Jay Keggy cool. was there. They nice. both they both loved it. Um, the we got. I mean, the, it was an amazing thing, and the opera is really intense. Um, and there's some there's some weaknesses I'll say with the opera. There's some things that I mean, it was Jay Keggy's first opera, so we'll cut him some slack. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, but it's a really amazing, very touching piece, and uh, and um, and it really connects with the audiences really well. Just generally, like the opera itself does, and um, I feel like BOC did a really good job. Um, yeah, I, saw, was, I saw some of the photos there of their production there. They, they yeah. actually they got reviewed really well. I yeah, believe. got fantastic reviews, and really like what they did that was great is they just presented it. You know, a lot of what Jake. Peggy had said, and, and this is hearsay on my part, so apologies to Jake Heggy if he's listening for some reason, um, that, that um, he, he really enjoyed that we just presented the opera. A lot of companies present it and try to sort of make a statement one way or the other, but we just told the story and, you know, let it stand for itself. And that was what he said that he liked about it, which is, you know, it's... It's Ooh. great. And it was a huge moment for BOC, which is awesome. You know, again, I'm biased in favor of the company, blah, blah, blah. But it's, I love it when companies of any kind um, kind of continue to succeed and continue to grow. Um, and so that um, that was great to see. Good. And cool. Who sang the, the lead, the, the inmate? John Arnold. Is, is that who I saw? I yeah, know. I saw John Arnold as Ghost of Desrochers. <laughs> And Stephanie Scarcella was Sister Helen. John Arnold, he, he was spectacular. That is not an easy role. You know, you sing an aria while you're doing push-ups. Like, that's not, that sucks. Wow. <laughs> in your underwear, too, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. like, in, yeah, shirtless, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of an intense experience. It's just a really incredibly intense kind of journey for everybody who is in the show and incredibly difficult, I, I think. So. Wow. It's a great it's audition a good- piece, you know. Come in, do the push-ups, sing the aria. Right, right. right. (laughs) You'll guaranteed to be cast. Yeah, you all know that piece? It's pretty great. I don't know it, but I'm I'm just it's cool that they just decided to just present it, you know, as much as they could just as it was because it seems like that that's so rarely done nowadays. Yeah, I'm you know, I'm not sure. I know the director um is he he is a has a theater background and I'm not really sure what, you know, where how he sort of arrived at that decision to <clears throat> present it that way or if that was even a conscious choice it just sort of happened. Yeah. Um but uh, but yeah, I mean, it really like the story sort of speaks for itself. You know, it's about a young nun and a, and writing letters to a guy on death row, and he asks her to be his spiritual advisor, which means guiding him through the process of execution. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, there's really nothing to add to that. That that is such an intense experience for both characters that like, I I don't think there's really anything else that needs to be said. And so it, I, the opera does a the opera itself does a very effective job of conveying that. And, um, and so, um, 
so yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I think that it, it, it sort of gives you everything you need. Not all operas do. Not, a lot of operas need help. <laughs> but this, <laughs> one, <laughs> uh, this one doesn't. And so that it's great to sort of just sort of deal, watch the characters sort of wrestling with their own kind of stuff. So hmm. I'm, I'm going to say a really weird fact. Uh, yes. re- researching for for today's show, I said sometimes what I do is I go to Opera America just to see what the big companies are doing, and I I look I look for from now and for the next three months, and usually there's something in there that's new or interesting, like a premiere or something. There wasn't a single premiere or anything outside the box. What really? Huh? I was kind of surprised well, a, by that. There's a Tan Dun opera coming up at Opera Vancouver. Um, but it's it's a remount. It's not it's not a you know. Which one? What's it called? Is it T? Uh, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. They're doing it in May, May starting, I think, like May 7th or something. It's during the opera conference up there. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. I'd love to see that. Let's go. So yeah. to Vancouver, the best place ever? Is it the best yeah. place ever? Vancouver yeah. is the best place it ever. Is. Karen and I made the mistake of going there on our honeymoon and oh. then wanted to move there for like a year afterwards. Yeah, oh constantly looked at each other and went like, "Yeah, maybe we could," you know, like start <laughs> scheming and looking at. It was insane. I mean, yeah, oh it's, it's I mean, amazing. You go into the park; they've got redwood trees in their city park, and a bunch of like bald eagles flying around. It's insane. It's like there was. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> there was. There's so many insane things. It's 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 a beautiful city. I mean, there are things that are not so great about Vancouver, but it's still. It's. I mean. <laughs> like, um, like there was this one really, really old man who just wore like a thong and like sunned himself <laughs> in the park. Which was, was that you? Was that you? No, doing no, that? I, I, no, definitely no. I wouldn't have worn oh. a thong. Sorry, uh, I'm so yeah. lost. Are we talking about uh... opera? <laughs> <laughs> is this Elio Gablo or yeah. <laughs> No, but my favorite my favorite story there was this guy uh sitting outside like uh, a Starbucks. I was sitting at a Starbucks and there was this guy sitting next to me with these like wo- the kind of woman's shoes on. But I was looking at them trying to figure out if they were women's shoes or if they were just kind of fancy European men's shoes or something. And this heroine like this junkie starts kind of ambling towards me and I he kind of catches my eye cuz I always look at everybody cuz I, I just do that and he uh <laughs> And he, I can tell he's going to come over and ask me for money, but he doesn't ask me for money. He just kind of swings over to me and goes, how about them shoes? <laughs> <laughs> Which was like amazing. And then he walked away. And was, oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. You're listening to the Indie Opera Podcast. VPR Opera presents Incontro Barocco with Opera Feroce and Friends. Saturday, April 6th and Sunday, April 7th at 8 p.m. For more information, visit vpropera.org.
Opera Mission presents the North American premiere of Handel's Rodrigo at the Gershwin Hotel, Tuesday, May 21st through Saturday, May 25th. For more information, check operamission.org. Insight Alt, a festival of new operas commissioned by American Lyric Theatre, May 28th through July 3rd, 2013. This week-long festival includes a masterclass by world-renowned soprano Catherine Malfitano, two symposia curated by dramaturg Corey Ellison, and concert readings of three new operas in development at ALT performed by internationally acclaimed artists. For more information, check out altnyc.org. So I went and looked at Opera Colorado to see, you know, what was going on with the Scarlet Letter. They're not performing it. It's been postponed to 2015. Ooh. Uh, Who wrote the Scarlet Letter, the opera? Uh, Who wrote the wretched, wretched novel? I can tell you. Composer was Laurie Laitman. The the librettist was David Mason. Uh, The director was, oh, I should should say the director was supposed to have been Beth Greenberg. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Ah, mm-hmm. Um, who used to be at City Opera, and I don't know, maybe she's she's still there. She Lori wrote. So Beth Greenberg directed the Opera Spanica show. Yes. yes. Oh. Right. Right. Well, there are lots of tiny companies who are doing lots of new works. Like there's yeah, exactly. premieres all the time, mm-hmm. constantly. So constantly. I don't think we should despair. I think um, it no. reflects the reality of our economy right now, which is that people with means are holding on to what they have and the, the things that are safety that are safe. And those of us who don't have anything are doing whatever we can think of to try to better our situation. <laughs> <laughs> she does make a good point that yeah. all the no, energy, right. yeah. all the energy, all the new thinking, uh, all of the forward looking companies are this, these smaller companies, small people. And that's, that's a true. general, that's a general uh, trend that, mm-hmm. Um, all these kids who grow up with the classical music around them, with the big explosion of classical music in the '60s, and all the, you know, all the small. Is that what happened in the '60s? Yeah, I there was a... a different picture of the '60s. No, okay. in the... yeah, you remember? <laughs> uh, no, but in the '60s, when we were in all the civic opera companies, you know, every city founded their opera company in the '60s. Mm-hmm. It was a big blooming yeah. of opera, and so all these kids have grown up in these environments, and now they all want to produce opera, but they've done it by creating their own mm-hmm. companies. There's all this energy coming from underneath. It's sort of the future of where, where the art form's going. That's my optimistic look at it. I think it's also that, you know, like com- really small companies that are new or whatever have very little to lose. But yeah. like, you know, if, if Chicago Lyric produces something that, that doesn't sell, they have a real problem on their hands. Whereas, you know, a company like, like Opera Hispanica or BOC can take a real risk and there's a lot less at stake for them. There, you know, there's yeah. not the long, long running reputation. There's not the in needing to appease, you know, the, the, the season ticket holders as well as trying to bring in new audiences. It's a very different kind of situation that yeah. they're dealing with. And that makes, it makes it, it, it's both scarier because there you have nothing 
and but also freeing because you don't owe any you don't owe anybody anything. Right. It's right. sort of like when the dinosaurs got wiped out with the meteor. What? Right. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like That's that. True. All the little all the little mammals started proliferating. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then they then the smart mammals took over the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, indie opera companies can also just do like a one night thing, you know, or or a couple nights. They don't have to they don't have to have a huge production and yeah, pay overhead. I mean, actually, I oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the unfortunate reality for for those of us who try to make a career as singers uh, is that these small companies pay very very little compared to the big companies, yeah. and it makes it makes the reality of trying to support yourself as a professional musician even kind of further from your grasp. Yeah. So I mean, it's exciting to work on all these projects and do these really cool things. But very rarely does the fee even come close to paying your rent. So it's a yeah, it's, I think that's true. Of, but it's yeah. sort of romantic and wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gets old after a while. <laughs> yeah. uh. so it's the current reality that we live in. You know, like that's just the way it is. And so some people will quit singing because of it, and that's too bad. And some people will just sort of dig in and keep going, and that's how it goes. But it, that is the situation, is that it's harder and harder, I think, because these big companies used to pay something like a livable wage. And now, because... They people, yeah, they did. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. But you know what? It's not just opera. But wait, no, who used to pay livable wages? Oh, I think there were plenty of people who, who were making, who had a reasonably comfortable lifestyle singing for like C and B level houses you know, having like sort of a regional career. I don't think that mm -hmm. they necessarily never had to do anything else. Like that maybe some of them were on faculty at a school or had private students or something like that. But I think mm -hmm. it was at one time somewhat feasible to be a regional singer and have a career. But, but those when? things are harder and harder. Even, even like when I was applying to grad school, so not that long ago. Oh, okay. I see. So mm -hmm. in the very recent past. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't know. But that's, you know, that's my, that's me being an outsider looking in and, and applying to grad school. And I'm not like bemoaning it. It's just, it, you know, like I'm not sour grapes about it. It just is what it is. So lots of those small companies have closed. I grew up understanding that opera, being an opera singer, you know, because my father was a singer. I, I just understood it to be something that like being an opera singer was like, I want to be a poet. I want to be, you know, it's just, there's no, you know, I'm it's the market. Anything, yeah. I'm not saying that they were like comfortably middle class. Right. I'm just saying that they weren't living necessarily totally below the poverty line. Like mm -hmm. there's a, you know what I mean? Like they were, they were maybe making enough money singing and teaching to, to pay their bills mm -hmm. on a month to month basis. I'm not saying that they were like buying a house in the suburbs and having two cars and three kids and, and you know, all of that. That's a different thing. That's something yeah, that we you... haven't ever had that since like we had monarch monarchical rule. <laughs> we, haven't <had> <laughs> we haven't had like a musical middle class, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Bohemia. Yeah. Yeah, we right? started. We did start to get that in the '60s when the, with these regional companies. They did start to get that, but it's not just opera. Right. No. Yeah. That's what I. That's why I'm theater. like yeah. theater. Also. Oh, my gosh. No, but I'm any seriously anyone. You can no longer just work your job your whole life, work hard, and then retire. You have to put your money in the supposed dream of of the stock market. To you know what I mean? There's no one can just work and then retire. It just doesn't happen. No, that's certainly mm -hmm. true. I'm sorry. Um. Wow, we're really off subject. <laughs> 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 it's like La Boheme in here. <laughs> 
Did we kill the show? No, no, no. It just I yeah. always think about that that idea of retiring. It's it, it's like is it that attractive? I mean, not not that like was it ever assured to anyone and or was I don't know. I, I never ever thought I was just going to be like, yeah, 65, I'm going to have a fat pension. Whatever I'm doing, I'm definitely going to have some money That's set aside. I just never thought of, about that. That grew out of like it started to grow out of the 20s, right? It's when specifically when American invention. You right. know, it's like something we created as like a, a very much a very much ideal way of producing a culture that was going to live past, you know, like live into late age. Well, was I that- think I think it was more that when we established these like retirement accounts and whatnot, like back in the With FDIC. in the New Deal, yeah, 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 all that stuff, like that people didn't live past seventy usually. Right. You know, lots mm. of people died in their jobs. So, the, mm-hmm. so but now that people live into their 80s and 90s, so the expectation of retiring at 65 seems so patently absurd. But also, it, it you know, it, it implies that work is somehow sort of drudgery. But if you actually really yeah. like what you do, then you shouldn't want to quit. Like, yeah, and, I mean, and so, I mean, that's certainly... I don't know. I, See, I think that that's, 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 that's tough because choosing your work is a luxury in and of itself. I totally agree you know, with that. Yeah. And, and that is absolutely true. Um, but for those of us who have the luxury of being able to choose, mm-hmm. um, I think that retirement doesn't seem to be such a necessary thing. Now, if you're working in a factory your whole life, you, I mean, I can't imagine wanting to work one day past my like need. It's just a, it's a, it, the whole American economy was based on a, on a, on an idea that, that doesn't really exist anymore now. Or a whole bunch of ideas that have evaporated. Right. Right. Oh my God! I'm gonna cut all this. What? <laughs> no, it's so good. It's getting dark. It's getting dark. <laughs> but you know, Americans work so hard. I mean, I, I wonder if that's partly also why we, you know, we we look forward to retire. Americans look forward to retirement so much. I mean, we work way harder than than the European people. I mean, maybe Chinese people work harder than us, but we, you know, we we hardly have any vacations at all. I mean, pe- people who work like nine to five jobs. Right. Yeah, know? take that, Greece. We have a much take more. That. We have much more different. We have a, like a very differently patterned society than Europe yeah. and and then China. You know, we're not talking about in, in America. That's the problem that everyone makes when they begin discussions about classes is it, trying to make these very crude divisions where we don't have them. You know, like we have class problems in America, but we also have so many different situations that Europe doesn't face. And, you know, I think people ch- and Americans also have different expectations out of life than Europeans do. In my experience, Europeans are, are sort of, they're much more sort of going with the flow where Americans mm-hmm. have this sort of belief that they can create the lives that they want for themselves and that they're totally mm-hmm. in control of their situation. And Europeans are much yeah. more sort of like, yeah, that doesn't always work out the way we want it to. And like, they're, you know, they have, they have thousands of years of history that we don't have to sort of look back on and be like, oh, yeah, maybe that doesn't always, maybe things don't always go the way we want, you know? <laughs> really? You trust, you trust modern people so much. Me? Yeah, you give them so much credit, I think, to understand like their historical like it like Europeans like deeply understand their history in a way that we don't or something. I don't think I don't that know. they I don't think that they deeply I don't think it's something that they're necessarily cognitively aware of. I think it's just ingrained in their culture. You know, mm-hmm. like there's a there's a I'm not saying that like I mean certainly there are Europeans who are deeply aware of their culture and there are Europeans who are not at all just like just like right. Americans, right? So yeah, just like anywhere. But but I think in terms of culturally there there isn't the you know like Americans have this drive to sort of like be something special like as when we're all sort of raised Mm -hmm. to like do something spectacular and make your mark on the world and and my 
my interactions with Europeans have not, they, they, they seem sort of less concerned with that and, and mm -hmm. less impressed by that notion. And so mm. the, their expectations of life are just, they sort of get to live. And hopefully that it's a reasonably comfortable life. Uh, um, I want to. I want to. You convert. guys are killing me. I want to be Europeanist. <laughs> what? This is an interesting Peter. <laughs> this parade of stereotypes brought to you by In the Opera Podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, like we're really gonna get Europeans? Excuse me. I'm I'm a European. I identify as European, and I'm very offended by what you said on your podcast. <laughs> I don't think that's ever gonna happen. <laughs> that was my pan-Euro no, accent. Not saying that every European I've ever met is that way. I'm just talking about broad cultural differences, and I think that that's fair. Hmm. I'm not making like I'm not being racist. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> But no, it is definitely true that we are somewhat the victims of our own success. The Americans do produce a lot more than a lot of other populations. And frankly, what? those who they really do. And, and we demand productivity. More and the other side of that coin, though, is those who kept their jobs during this whole recession keep trying harder and harder and are doing more and more work so they don't have to hire new workers. And they're producing so much more with less people. But yet they're producing capital. We produce capital in this I know. country. Yeah, we don't, we, we don't, don't produce, produce objects. We don't no, produce material. No, but even in the ones that do produce objects. What do Listen, we produce? I'm, I'm thinking about where I work. Yeah. You know, we, we are turning out more and more of the stuff that took weeks to turn out. We're turning it much faster with less employees. Mm -hmm. And we're doing it better and better and better. I mean, you work at a factory. Yeah, in some ways. In some ways. <laughs> but no. I, I, yeah, I think when we're spatula city. No, no, I mean, I do technical I, stuff. I do technical websites, oh, okay. and websites oh, okay. and things and all that. I mean, yeah. if I was gonna run, uh, if I was gonna try to run a multinational company, yeah. my first goal would be to make sure that all of my labor got out of America and all of my tax payings and all of my shelters and stuff. We're out of America, because so because yeah, because it's does. so expensive to manufacture or do anything that's involved with like labor or customer service or anything. That's why everybody outsources things to Ireland or, or 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 India. That's why that's all happening. Is that why we, we? Is that why we're hiring European singers? I don't think there's a way that we can tie a micro macro rope around these things. I'm trying really hard to bring it back to opera. That's. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Fair. I think that opera is a big privilege on in every way, and that it's almost like um, people are going to argue about why we have it. But the argument that I like the least, and I I don't have the power or the words yet to be able to make like something to counteract it. But the argument that I like the least for opera is that it is somehow like going to be something like a crumb from the table of. The, the the nobles you know what i mean that that yeah. that real that basically trickle down yeah trickle down opera yeah. it sucks and i don't yeah. know if that's what i want i mean maybe that's how opera has always been but uh so so wait doing... i'm sorry i don't follow that so like people argue that opera should be something that the that the rich give yeah. to the poor no, no well in a way it's like it's like you know we, we have to that's we always sort have of to is what it is that's very now. Coke brothers yeah, but now it's like trickle up because because there's all these little little companies, you know. I th I think building upward, and you know, some people are leaping upward. Um, even little companies are being supported by richer patrons. I mean, it takes yeah. it takes people to donate. We do not cover the price of our tickets with what comes in the door. It just yeah. doesn't happen. So it still is, it still is a somewhat of a noble system of the yeah. 
we go out there and we but uh opera singers are often it's sort of like being jesus you get out there and you crucify yourself in the name of of your art form <laughs> you do you wow. live poor and you <laughs> i don't know if that's how i feel about it i really i don't like that I, do. I know i don't like that either i don't suffer i mean i yes okay i work really hard i work really hard at what i do but i don't feel like i suffer for it any more than than is appropriate i feel like i'm i'm privileged to get to do what i do um and and i and i feel like it's a real gift but i but i i argue i i take issue with the idea that opera isn't necessary and i i don't necessarily mean that like that opera in, in and of itself as an art form is specifically important but art and entertainment and escapism and theater and storytelling <laughs> and all that stuff is absolutely necessary to being human we are yeah. not human without these things well and nobody so, would argue against that right and so not, opera, none of us would. Yeah. right so i think that opera to me represents the sort of culmination of all of those things tied into one like opera is you know as you know to quote or wagner's gesamtkunstwerk yes, right? but it really oh, right but it does really, wagner have to walk in the room every uh, single time no but you but know it's kind of a thing right um, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 i think like i think that's actually true like what it what opera is is a culmination of all of the art forms in one and i i think that that has innate value to society and the fact that it's expensive doesn't mean that it's not important or that or that it's necessarily just for the wealthy it means that we are dependent upon government or you know lots of lots of not wealthy people giving small amounts of money or one very generous patron who decides that they really think that the mission of one particular organization is really important um, and there's any number of models that can work um, but I, I think that societally we have a problem we have a problem in this country with with really acknowledging the value of the arts and that that applies to everything and, and that's a great weakness of the American society because the arts don't necessarily have market value but you can't argue that they don't count I, I do think that market value though I think that the if you actually yeah I do but I mean okay but like is there anything in any of the arts that rivals besides maybe like mainstream Hollywood films that rivals in terms of a market share anything like any single one of the major professional yeah, sports actually. you know I wish I had these statistics in front of me oh it really bites because there, there is a statistic about that pairing comparing sports spending you know number of people go to see sports plus uh, versus arts events and there it's it's shocking how many more people go to see uh non-sports arts events i mean we don't have the statistics I but i don't know if it's about number of people i'm talking about the the amount of money and the place that it has in the culture and the complete pervasiveness of sports something like the super bowl is not we have nothing art that even rivals it as an artistic the like take your pick at the most mainstream thing like, like the, uh, Oscars the, or something. the grammy the oscars they don't they totally pale in comparison to something like the super bowl right well the oscars doesn't Oscars, it's like millions of people all around the world watch the Oscars. I'd be very surprised if the Oscars made as much or even nearly as much as the Super Bowl in terms of total revenue, ad share. Oh, okay. Talking about making making. Yeah, as, just, actually, I'm talking okay. about the business of, of business, like the, the whole right. the, you know, market share, like the, having that kind of influence. and that Because that is what allows you to then create sub-businesses and then create like global capital and then really do this crazy dance where it's like – 
you know, we're singing, we're sitting in the chair made by the company that made the wheels that, and I'm chewing the gum beneath you know, it's like that complete interconnectedness comes from a, a very powerful marketplace. And I'm not sure that there is one in the arts except for mainstream Hollywood films. But even, I would say that, that Hollywood probably loses more money than it makes when I mean, we don't point, even know. At this point, that's true. But we don't so even you know, know about most of the crap that doesn't get produced, you know, or that doesn't catch the, or just goes straight to DVD, you know, like those, there's a lot of money losing in Hollywood. So I think. But there was I, a time, there was a long, there have been long stretches where Hollywood has made a lot of money and, and yeah. had like a lot of money to throw around. And the music industry has had that too. Although this year, I, this is a statistic, I do know, like this year, this past year, 2012, has been the first time that the music industry has broken, has made money since I think t 1999. You're talking about like the recording industry. The entire recording industry has has made money this year. It's been the first year that they've made money as on the whole since 1999. Wow. Hmm. You know what I mean? So I mean, but like, how could that be? I mean, how how could how could they all have stayed in business if they weren't making money? Well, because there a lot of people didn't stay in business. There was like you have your Justin Bieber's that covered like a large mm -hmm. part part of the market share, and that X'd out maybe like a hundred different acts, you know. And like mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that individual people aren't making money. It doesn't mean that the industry and and we're also talking like very small percentage points, you know, of growth and 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 decline. Like it, the industry shrank from ninety nine to two thousand twelve. A little, little bit, but for a long time, and that was the point of this statistic that I read that somebody can, you know, probably correct me on. I'm probably wrong in some way, but it's something like 10, 15 years of not making any money watching the industry shrink, you know? Wow. I don't think that's that uncommon in the arts. I think that there's like these waves that people ride, but look at sports. Has anyone ever had that kind of thing happen in sports? It's since the whatever yeah. but sports Six. is different i mean look anywhere in the world sports is king i mean you go you go to, you go to europe soccer is king true. you go to south america soccer is king i mean it's 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 That's just true. it's pervasive it's 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 it well, goes back to like primordial times that people have loved watching sports. Well, so. but that's the same for music. I mean, we had music and art back then too. I think the difference is yeah. that, that that sport mm. sport yeah, is Wait a minute, TV. TV. I bet TV's made money. Yeah, but in ancient Rome, you know, more people went to the Colosseum than than to any like theater events. Right, right. But the, I think the big difference actually between sports and arts is that sports is a community event. Like mm -hmm. it, it's it's about building. Like you go with a group of friends and you drink and you have a good time and you you know you laugh and talk and whatever. And it, so it's a it's a much more sort of like social community event where the arts is much more sort of. You go maybe with a date, and it's quiet, and you don't get to talk to anyone. <laughs> I mean, but for very me, I'm counting, I'm counting the arts in terms of market share as inviting people over to watch Breaking Bad and drinking wine. Right. That's still the arts, and that still gets yeah. counted according to someone's tallying of, of money that we're doing for this kind of, you know, right? So, right. But, sure. wait, but I, think, I, I guess I'm concerned about the idea of size versus... You know, just because it's bigger. It's well, better. even if we get away from size, this is an, another thing. Even if we get away from like talking about the statistics that nobody has, we I can at them. least say okay, <laughs> we can at least say that all of us might agree to the fact that in this country, even in New York, which is maybe one of the most whatever you want to call artistic cities in the country, there is people kind of I don't know. People generally don't have a taste for the arts in the way that they do for other things. I, I feel that, I, maybe uh, that's just my opinion. I think that's a failing of artists then. Of who? who of artists. Mm, okay. I know what? people who love the arts. Like if we, if we love what we do so much and we believe so strongly in it, how is it that we can't communicate that wait, to wait, people? Wait a second, hold on, hold on people. 
Mm-hmm. I just want to get a little bit of reality here. Okay. Have have the arts ever been the the central story? I mean, hasn't it usually been for the elites anyway? I mean, I think it's, it's different. I think in certain cultures, yes. the arts have like like in ancient Greece, you yes. know, like plays, Euripides plays, etc. Would were, they they thrived as like the center of attention? I, I don't know I, if I mean, that's true. I mean, maybe no, I don't was. know. I don't know how they compare to sports. I'm sure sports were huge then too. But I do know that thousands of people went to plays in yeah, ancient but Greece. I, I think that might be a report. Wait a second. Operas. I think ahead. that might be I, that's a reporting error. Just be, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, there are a no, lot were, of people. There were times where you could make a lot of money as an opera composer. There were times where you could make a lot of money as a. There were yeah. times. Nineteenth century Italy. I mean, they they that right. was opera yeah. was huge. Yeah, and, and the 18th century, especially in terms of like that was the decade where like there were tons of bad operas and everybody was working, everybody was singing in France and in Italy. It was like opera was. I still don't know if that's true because you're we're believing what we're being told by the stories told by the people who won at the top of the pyramid. I don't know if that's true. What other what other alter alternative do we have? Here's here's like the football uh, Oscars analogy. Okay, yes. Yes, the Super Bowl is a bigger deal. Uh, but in your mind right now, how much of a bigger deal are we talking? Four times, ten times? What, what, do you, what do you, in your mind is the... But, but, but again, what are we saying? Are we saying how much money does it make or how many people are I'm, watching? I'm talking about viewers. I don't care about how much money Yeah, okay. I'm, so okay, different. so viewers, okay. I'd say, are, compared to the Oscars, and yeah. I might be totally wrong... I think the Super Bowl, and and I, we're only talking about American viewers here because the Super Bowl only matters to Americans, well, right? Well, no, I'm no, it doesn't viewers. actually. But but I do think uh, I think worldwide no. Oscars are watched by more people than the. I agree. Actually, that's not true. Okay, really? So I, I think it's four times as much. Am yeah. I wrong? Uh, well, according to the statistics, excuse me, that I found, uh, Super Bowl one hundred eleven million viewers and Oscars forty one point three million. But that is in America? Uh, no, I would assume that the viewers are worldwide. Okay. So really? it's just more than twice as many. Huh. Yeah. So um, maybe almost three times as many. Same thing, same thing with uh, the ad buys. By the way, I'm also not trying to say that more people should be going to see Peter Grimes than they should go see the Steelers. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that that's, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't think that it's bad that people spend so much money on sports. I just, I don't even care, you know? <laughs> like... <laughs> and I think there's tons of great opera and music and art going on all the time. So, and then and then we were talking about um, sports, like it's always growing and they never, it never shrinks. Is that what I heard? Well, I mean, I think we're talking about like the power to generate the kind of money that sets you free to control parts of the world and be and be like a force in society. And at this point. Like, like because of the nature of the markets of art, like there's only a few ways to do that at that that grand of a level, and they usually have to do with mass media, I think, because right now, uh, people don't talk about operas in the street, and they used to. Uh, well, I'm a pretty to... long time ago, though. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I'm, not, yeah. I'm not saying that they should. I'm just saying that they don't. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. Well, yeah. you know, it's also part of this is now it, there are more types of media. I mean, opera was the game in town. Yeah, 
That's true. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think, so it's kind of hard to separate that out just because it's a smaller portion now than it was then. Of course, back then there was only that one choice. So mm-hmm. if you actually took all the arts and put it together, I've heard that the numbers uh, like blow sports out of the water. Huh. If we're talking about film, theaters, TV, mm-hmm. TV right, opera, it, all it totally yeah. blows. Video sport. games. Yeah. Yeah, that counts for Ooh, me. Awesome. Well, now we've, and then sports become <clears throat> very insignificant if you can take all that into. Yeah. I mean, just take Angry Birds alone. That probably beats everything in the world. <laughs> right. That's the point. Like, that's exactly what you see, though, in every industry. Like, the gaming industry is something that, like, only recently has been taken really seriously, not just yeah. by the culture. But by the the forces of like the market forces, but people are like, oh, this is like a major money making thing here, you know. And uh, I would bet if you look at the gaming industry's numbers, it's the same thing you see in the music industry. Like simple things like Angry Birds account mm-hmm. for the majority of what people are doing, not the really complicated, yeah. beautiful, intricate games, not I, the really you know the gems. Yeah, it's and to, true. To say something uh, also positive about opera, um, and this is kind of stupid, but. You know, I was watching TV uh, just a couple hours ago, and there was a thing on about Dancing with the Stars. Okay. All right. And I'm t- now, you want to talk about ballroom dancing as a dead art form that all of a sudden... <laughs> is like the yeah. hottest thing. Like, yeah. not bad. And if yeah. it can happen to ballroom dancing... It can happen to opera. <laughs> opera. It could actually. I think. I think that I, I wouldn't be that unhappy if there was a really cheesy opera reality show. Honestly, I mean, I think it would be because I'm sorry. Like Dancing with the Stars is is a bad. I just don't enjoy that show. But you're right. It still does something for ballroom dancing. I bet people took ballroom dancing classes because of it. Or you know what sure. I mean? I think people invest their their yeah. thinking. So in let's that. take heart. In that example. I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, now there's like there's two TV shows about musical theater on, you know, there's Glee, there's Smashed. I mean, there I wouldn't be surprised if some you know re- reality show came on about opera singers or something. And if you look you at know. the those weird what are those shows where they, they have amateurs come on and sing? Some of these amateurs that come on and sing is this there's some huge kid who came in and sang tenor. Uh, right. Uh, was it Nessun Dorma? I don't remember what he sang, but it was. There was a guy oh, yeah. who sang this drama. There was Paul Potts, the, the oh, British right. guy. Uh-huh. Was, yeah. uh, he was he was all right. He I mean, for right. a dude, he's yeah. nice. I thought he was pretty. You know, I mean, yeah. it's it's not it's not like a it's it's a guy who learned to sing to a recording of Nessun Dorma. So it's super beautiful because you can hear this man singing this thing by himself, perfecting it for hours in his room. But is it like the guy I want to see singing Kalat? Like, no, you know, of course not. But it's cool. I mean, it's like it is a bright spot. It's a bright moment for opera. I think well, I think it's cool. I, I mean, I, I question that actually because w- what what happens is people go out and buy a whole bunch of like Paul Pot CDs or Susan sure. Boyle CDs 
but they're, it's not necessarily converting people to buying tickets for the opera, at least not to my, no. not in my no, awareness. No, you're right. No, but what it is doing is it's generating uh, music for whatever division of uh, record company handles Susan Boyle and Paul Potts. And then they, in turn, can reinvest that money into, like, other, you know, potentially really different kind of interesting, more interesting projects. Yeah. You know, everyone knows yeah. the story about Arvo Parrott, right? I love this story. No, I don't know it. Okay, so Arvo Parrott's um, recording, I think it was Fur- either it was Fiorellina or it was Spiegel im Spiegel. Uh, those are two very famous recordings by him. One of them in 70 something or 80 basically saved the classical music recording industry hmm. because it was like nobody was selling anything. It was in the middle of a recession and they were going to like Sony was going to close down their classical music division, which was like a big bad signal for the business. And then suddenly this, this disc sells like hotcakes and the whole industry like was able to like basically stay afloat for years because of one guy's, very simple, very beautiful, minimalist kind of composition disc. Wow. You know, like those things happen. Like that's the Justin Bieber of the classical. It's, it's you know. Mm, cool. Interesting. It, you never know when that spark is going to come that's right. going to ignite it. And, right. you know, when something like a Gustavo Dudamel happens, where all of a sudden there's all this energy behind this, you know, electric personality Right, you, right. You, you never or know, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, like any of those guys. Like they're they're important. Those guys. All we need is that one star. Yeah, that's one star. To you know, to go. Oh, and people go nuts over. And it's going to be you, Noah. Well, yeah. What am I going to do? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you. It's all oh, up to you. <laughs> We're hanging our hopes on you. Oh no. Yes. Well, but all right. I should have something. I should have something. I'm off this week, so this is actually a good week for you to put that on me. So, so... <laughs> <laughs> so really... one week, of seven days. Yeah. No. I ha- yeah. Exactly. I have. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good. I can so actually go... probably do nothing tomorrow because I have so many days. Yeah. Can you can you uh, get into Eurovision or Eurovision? Oh my God, I love Eurovision. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Oh God, man. There's the, those the songs that win Eurovision are. There's a reason why they win. Will they let an American? I don't think so. I think that would break the the the, the name mold, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Get on Star Search. Get on Star Search. Star Search? Does that exist anymore? <laughs> I have no idea. America's Got Talent? Uh, I don't, I don't... How, about, how about American Idol? You know, I hate to say I don't watch any of those. So. Just you spend your evenings listening to Brahms. <laughs> you, you guys have got to watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, I love RuPaul's Drag Race. That's where it's at. That show Great, is yeah. hilarious. That show is really funny. <laughs> Great, yeah. oh, the the judges are so bizarre on that show. Oh, I love that show. That Too unites much. all of sorts of weird. All sorts of kids come out of the word work loving that show at my job. All oh, these really? kids in the box like love it. Yeah. Kids that otherwise like kind of hate Gabe, you know, like love that show. Right. It's, it's great. Oh, I, I'm not. It's not. It's it's super um, available. It's super hot media. Like you watch that show and it's entertaining every moment. And the but way it's edited. Kids and way like it because yeah, I, I thought because, I thought, it's, it, because uh, it's about well, like burning well, people and making fun of people and judging people and kind of celebrating weird dress yeah. and then also kind of being like, mm, girl, fix that way. You know, it's it's. Right. it's, it's it's Caddy. this whole it's the whole thing, yeah. Once again, though, since I don't actually watch the show, yes. Um, but I do know RuPaul, 
And yes. um, it was a genius, by the way. Yeah, actually, someone should write an opera about RuPaul. I mean, RuPaul should be in the opera. About that's RuPaul. just begging. That's begging to be written. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, we've got this this opera coming over about um, uh, what's her name, Nicole. Uh, the the opera that was Nicole um, Kidman. No, no, no. The the Anna Nicole Smith. Nicole Anna Smith. Yeah, the, that NYC opera is doing next year. I mean, it's it's like the characters are just getting more and more like larger than life. You yeah. know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's it's very similar to the to the opera that uh, NYC opera just did. Um, but the difference is that that's face? that's a good that's a good comparison. Yeah, but yeah. but uh, um, Anna Nicole Smith is like makes a lot of sense as an opera subject to me because it's like this horrible, uh, very relevant story that we're all kind of processing and thinking about kind of still. I mean, in a way, but uh, RuPaul already did this incredible series uh, of performances, created this performing empire for himself, you know, yeah. like. What he did is almost an opera, but just without music in a weird way. My God, I mean, his life is an opera. I mean, yeah. You could just do an yeah. opera about his life. And it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. The amazing thing about RuPaul for me is what where he started, you know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know where he started. Oh, just in New York. You, you, oh, okay. he, you'd see him, you know, sell, hawking his T-shirts on a bench outside of Wigstock. And, you know, he was just there hmm. in it and... The thing that I liked always liked about RuPaul is he is a, a relentlessly positive human being. He's, really? Oh my gosh! Hmm. I've never met a person who can be positive in almost any situation. Oh my he God. really he's been through yeah. such, you know, drag queens. It, it wasn't as easy as it is today, kids. Oh yeah, they, <laughs> well, he, sure he seems to have. He's probably been beaten up like many, many, many a time. Well, no, he's pretty big. But I bet, I, bet, I, mean, I bet he's guy. lived through all sorts of things. He has yeah. this quality that other people have, too, of being – like, he's friendly. He has social – he seems to have social relationships and things. But he seems like he's very much, to me, a loner in a positive mm-hmm. way. Like, he seems to have yeah. kind of tuned out others and believed that what he has to say for himself is the most important thing, which would be mm-hmm. great if I could do that, if we could all do that. But it, it's that's like that's his, gift. That's, his that's, best, that's his best trick, and he does it all the time. Oh, yeah. Trust me, I tune you guys out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's something sort of zen about him. He's almost, yeah, he, he just is able to access this inner calm, kind of, when, whenever yeah. he wishes. Let's get him on. Get him on. Yeah, mm. I, I haven't seen him in a long time. I, I, is he even in New York? Do they film that in New York anymore? I have anymore? no idea. Why wow, you seem to know him. Do you know him, Peter? I, I used to see him all the time. Oh. He, I lived at the... Oh, my God. I'm telling, when did you see him? Stars. I used to live at the Chelsea Hotel. Um, I didn't know you lived at the Chelsea Hotel. For a couple of years, yeah. You, you lived in the Chelsea Hotel? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I used to work at <laughs> um, work in the clubs, believe it or not. Um, I used to do art for um, Lee Chapel, who's still throwing parties, I believe, here mm. in the city. Actually, he is. I, I, I saw an advert for something he did for um, St. Patty's Day. But um, yeah. I used to do art at the, the Roxy. Roxy. Yeah, and then we did stuff at um, the Palladium. And But basically, it was, it was art. It was making art and then throwing parties that had theme and stuff like that. Uh, but so we'd mm. see him all the time. RuPaul, all cool. of them. Cool. Yeah. Well, he was the nicest. He was incredible. <laughs> Anyway, but I don't know if he's in New York. 
I oh, I really do think like I know that there's a lot of people who still kind of say like oh you have to be kind of cutthroat and you kind of but I, in a way I feel like either the nice guys do win out in a way or the nice people rather do win out or I don't want to be not a nice guy like when it comes to professional things and when it comes to just generally dealing with others like I would hate you know what I mean mm-hmm. I, I, like I'm thinking of somebody like Domingo like Domingo's known as a nice guy like, I met him once. He didn't know who I was. He shook my hand and, like, you know what I mean? Like, he just seems like a nice guy. And it's just, there's something to be said for just being a generally nice person. Yeah, but Maybe there's that's a, a lot of, of people no- out there who are not nice, who are, like, you know, very successful and not nice at all. I know. And I think that there's a lot of times that people go, well, you know, that's because so-and-so, they're a genius, they're blah, blah, blah. But look mm-hmm. how many geniuses there are that can just kind of shake hands and be genuine, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, the, the the most brilliant people I've ever met have been nice. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you talking about us uh, yeah. here on the call? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you guys are bitches. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> guys, we're getting to feature length here. I know. Yeah, yeah this, this is epic. <laughs> this is, is going to be an animal to edit. <laughs> you can't leave it all on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I don't know how much of this will make it in the show, but it certainly was fun. Yeah, it was super. Fun. I don't know if anyone will stick with it for that. Long. I think we should do a show just on um, Peter's experiences making art in clubs and and, and his his <laughs> date with, with RuPaul. I want I want to hear about that. Live, why was it, Why were you living in the Chelsea Hotel? Because I had to move out. Uh, me and my. You're having adventures. We had to move out of where we we're living, right uh-huh. away. Uh, uh, we were living above a restaurant that wanted us to move out. They turned off our water. They did. They started to do. I mean, it was really awful. We had to literally just move, and we're like, "Where can we go? Like right now?" <laughs> right. So, you know. And um, we'd heard that people lived at the the Chelsea Hotel, so we went there. And you know, they didn't check. I mean, they 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 could have checked our credit, but I, I don't think they ever asked for it or anything. <laughs> and you don't. You know, you don't really have a lease. You don't. I mean, there's no. Yeah. No contract? No, yeah, no, no, except no. now I think it's different. But back then, it was sort of an agreement. And I mean, they did give you a lease when you moved But it's in. the coolest thing ever. It's, it's, it's like saying you lived in an opium den for a couple of years. <laughs> totally. It's the coolest thing you could ever say. I mean, all these rock stars live there. You know? the, yeah. the lease itself was, you lived. was from the, the um, 19th century. And it basically ha- was the original lease when they first built the building. Wow. Oh my God. And it That's said amazing. things such as your servants cannot come through the front door. <laughs> they must go through the side door and then use the back elevator. Wow. And they tell you that you cannot hang your laundry on the roof. You can't go up there. Well, that probably still applies to some well, people. You know, it was, the, lease, the lease alone was just amazing and was totally antique and was probably wow. technically illegal i'm sure everything wow. in new york that's good is technically illegal <laughs> that's true <laughs> yeah. but yeah no it's a, it's a pretty amazing actually <laughs> our next door neighbor was dd ramon wow no way i'll tell you this horrible story i don't know i can't I can't believe i'm telling this story it's not horrible because it's a bad story it's horrible because i didn't know who dd ramon was <laughs> I didn't know at all. So we're, I was standing on our balcony. We shared a balcony. Um, oh, God. And 
I didn't know who it was. And it was, we had just come back from work, literally at the club, you get paid at two in the morning. So you come <laughs> back and you're like exhausted and was standing on the balcony with a friend and Didi comes on his balcony and I didn't know who he was. <laughs> so he, I say, hi, I'm Peter. And, and he says, yeah, hi, my name is Didi. Oh, I said, that's an interesting name. And we, talk, we talked for like a half an hour. I said, so what do you do? He goes, oh, I used to be in a band. Oh, my God. Oh, no. And I said, and I said, used to be in a band. What, what do you mean? He says, yeah, we're not together anymore. They, we are making a documentary about it. Oh, well, that's cool. You know, that's good for you. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. You good know? for you. Exactly. Oh, that's good. I didn't know who it was. <laughs> and did he, did he, so he never told you the name of the band? No, he figured I knew who he was. I did not know. My roommate knew who, who he was and didn't know that this conversation was happening. And my friend who was on the balcony was just there smiling. That's awesome. I, and Whoa. I, you know, I just graduated from college and I, you know, I knew Mozart and Beethoven. I don't know who he was. <laughs> but Didi was a really, really sweet guy. He was very, very sweet and soft-spoken. That's, that's one of my, I have other stories. I'm not going to go into them. Pretty cool. All right, guys, I have to go to bed. Yeah, okay. Or something. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you for this. Well, I guess it wasn't the indie opera podcast, or it was something. It else. was. What do you mean? It, it was. was great. Yeah. Oh, God, it, it was, was very like fun. A, a, it was fun. A Gesamtkunstwerk. Gesamt. Yeah. It was a Gesamtkunstwerk. <laughs> it was a total art form. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Somebody sang. Somebody danced. <laughs> hey, man. The Glee. The Glee podcasts are like the Glee cast. You ever listen to the Glee cast? I don't yeah. know why I've listened to the Glee cast. They're like they're like four hours long. Uh, what is and they're, well, actually, because they're hilarious. That's why I listen to them. But they're yeah. Oh, so cool. we're 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 okay. Okay. We're okay. Wow. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks, guys, for joining the conversation. Awesome. See you guys. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye. 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 Stitcher? We are on it, so get it. Stitcher is an award-winning provider of news and talk radio for your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio.